Okay, folks, we're going to be looking at Lesson 10 today. And I thought that we would be, as we we're progressing along in Judges, I thought that we would be able to look at a couple of folks today, particularly Gideon and his son Abimelech. But there's so much material that we need to cover today concerning Gideon. We'll look at Abimelech and the two minor judges next week. So today we're going to focus on Judges chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 32. And again, we're not going to read these passages simply because of the time factor that we have in presenting this lesson. So we're just going to kind of go through this together and take a look at some information that is going to be very helpful to us concerning Gideon. Now, Again, before we talk about Gideon, let's remind ourselves of a few things. Remember, they have taken the land. Joshua has encouraged them to keep the covenant promises, and that if they don't, God is going to raise up an oppressor. And so we're seeing this cycle happen with each one of the judges. So, for instance, they forget the covenant promises. They worship other gods, the other Canaanite gods. So God then punishes them by sending an oppressor. They then cry out to the Lord to deliver them, and God then raises up a deliverer or a judge to free them from their oppression. And then that generation goes to their death, the next generation is raised up, and that generation again forgets the Lord, chases after the Canaanite gods, and again the cycle continues. And that's what we're going to see as we look at Judges chapter 6, in particular verses 1 to 10, uh, the writer is going to be telling us that the cycle continued. So I want you to notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 to 7, we're going to see again the decline and the, the oppression of Israel. Israel sinned against the Lord, and he allowed the Midianites to oppress them for seven years. So here they are, they're sinning against the Lord they're chasing after other gods. So God allows an oppressor, the Midianites. Now, you remember the Midianites? They were supposed to have been wiped out back when Moses was journeying to the promised land. They were in the land of the Amorites, that is, on the east of the Jordan. And the Midianites were there. And because of their encouragement of sin, that brought a stumbling block to Israel, God said to punish them and to wipe them out. And of course, remember now the Midianites, that's where Balaam is from. And so they had a, a major battle. Of course, Israel won. But again, here we are. We're a few years later, maybe a hundred years later or so. And we see the Midianites have raised up again. They've gotten stronger. And now they are oppressing Israel. And God has allowed that to happen because they, Israel has found itself in sin again and found itself doing evil in the sight of the Lord, turning away from him. So, in particular, the text tells us exactly how the Midianites oppressed Israel. The Midianites oppressed Israel by destroying their crops and their animals. Basically, 
the Midianites basically destroyed the economy of the Israelites. How did they do that? Well, when there were crops or the produce of crops, the Midianites would either come and take it or burn their fields or take their animals or slaughter their animals. Basically, when you do that, you're basically in an agrarian culture stifling that culture, stifling that nation. The economics are not going to be good. The people are going to be starving. There's no food. There's no way to make money. And so you see the suppression taking place. Now, in the midst of this, we're going to see something that is amazing that's happening. We're going to see that in verses 7 through 10. Here we see, again, the cycle in which, okay, so there's this issue of sin, chasing after other gods. God raises up an oppressor. Israel then cries out to the Lord. So notice there, it says that when Israel cried out to the Lord, verses 7 through 10, he sent them a message through a prophet, an unknown prophet. So here they are, they're crying out to God, God, you need to deliver us, God, why have you forsaken us? God raises up a prophet to bring them a message. And the passage doesn't tell us who this prophet is. And you'll see that many times in the Old Testament, in the historical narratives, you will see that there is oftentimes an unknown prophet who is raised up to speak to the people. So I need to remind you just real quick before we talk about what the prophet said, I need to remind you that when you look at Jewish society at that time, and it's particularly through the Old Testament, from the time of the formation of the nation with Moses up into the time we get to the end of the Old Testament with Malachi, you're going to see that there are several classes of people in Jewish society that have different roles. So, of course, you have those who are in government, those who are leaderships. In this section, we're seeing that they are judges. Later, we'll see that they are the king. You also see that there are the priests, those who lead the nation in worship, the Levites and the priests, those who lead the nation in worship at the tabernacle. But then there's also a third group that we see that is an important part of Israeli culture, and that is the prophet. God raises up prophets to speak to the nation when they are in the midst of their sin to call them back to him. And you see that throughout the the Old Testament scriptures and especially in the historical narratives that God has this special group of people. Sometimes he tells us who they are. Sometimes we don't know who they are. But there are prophets who bring forth the message of God. So here's the message that the prophet brings from the Lord for Israel as they're facing this oppression by Midian. The prophet reminds Israel of their covenant obligations to God and their disobedience. I think this is amazing. When you look at this, they're crying out to the Lord, Lord, save us. Why have you forsaken us? And God brings them a message, and he's, but the message is very simple. You remember the obligations that you were called to. You swore to them. Now you're disobedient. And I think that's especially important because that's really all they need to know. They need to know that they had made these vows to the Lord to fulfill these obligations, 
But they chased after foreign gods. They chased after the gods of the Canaanites and got involved in the things that the Canaanites got involved with. And God was punishing them for their disobedience. And, and I'll tell you why this is important for them to understand, because it points to what they need to do. They need to return back to the Lord and begin to fulfill their covenant obligations again. This is why they're facing the oppression, is because they've been disobedient to him. So now we come to really the, the major section of our lesson, which is chapter 6, verse 11, through chapter 8, verse 32. And this is the discussion concerning Gideon, Gideon as the judge. When we come to chapter 6, verse 11 through 24, we're going to see his calling. And I think it's very interesting when we look at his calling. So first of all, Gideon was secretly threshing grain at night when the angel of the Lord appeared to him. A couple things here real quick. Obviously, the oppression is taking place. Their crops are being destroyed or taken. Gideon, being wise, decides, if I'm going to do this without having it taken, I'm going to have to thresh the grain. That is, you know, to remove the chaff from the grain. They use forks and, and throw the grain in the air. The heavy grain then falls. The chaff blows away. He figures the only way for me to do this is to do it at night so I can't be seen. So he's in the threshing floor, threshing his grain at night. And while he's doing that, the angel of the Lord makes an appearance. Now, again, we need to remind ourselves who the angel of the Lord is. Many times he has already appeared to us in these books that we've looked at, particularly the five books, in particular Joshua, here we are in Judges. Again, we're seeing the angel of the Lord. And I want you to recognize that when the angel of the Lord makes an appearance, those who are with him recognize that this is God. This is not just an angel. This is the presence of God in their midst. And they react to that. And we would say that it, it is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. This is in his pre-incarnate state, in his pre-human state. This is Jesus. And so here he is. He's threshing the grain. The angel of the Lord makes an appearance. And then notice what the angel of the Lord says to Gideon. The angel of the Lord called Gideon a mighty man of valor. Isn't that interesting? Here's a guy. He's sneaking around because he's afraid of the Midians, threshing grain at night, the angel of the Lord says to him, you're a mighty man of valor. I think that's interesting. Now, I don't understand how the conversation goes the way it does. Gideon doesn't know who's talking to him. It's not like he knows it's the angel of the Lord at this point. We're going to see that a little bit later that he doesn't. But he begins to have a conversation with the angel of the Lord concerning where God is. And so Gideon questioned why the Lord has forsaken them. So he begins to question, why has the Lord forsaken us? And the Lord told him to deliver Israel. So the Lord then says to him, okay, but you are the one who's going to deliver Israel. I think that's very interesting because you think about how often we get together with people and we just complain about what's going on and why is this happening and why, God, are you doing this? But when we do that kind of complaining and talking about it, we never expect anyone to say to us, 
You're the answer. That's exactly what's going on here. Gideon is just complaining, maybe having conversation about why is God forsaking them. And here the Lord says to him, but you're the one who's going to deliver Israel from the Midianites. I think that's amazing, which then draws a response from Gideon. Gideon protested that he was weak, but the Lord stated that he would be with him. So Gideon says, no, not me. I'm, I'm not able to do this. I'm weak. But the angel of the Lord says to him, I'll be with you to do this. At this point in the narrative, we see that Gideon wants to make an offering, but he says, I need to go get it. The angel of the Lord tells him to go get it. So, and he does, he brings it back and Gideon made an offering to the Lord and it was consumed by fire. The text says that the angel of the Lord with his staff touched this offering with his staff and it was immediately consumed with fire. So notice now what happens. Then Gideon realizes it is the angel of the Lord and reacts with fear. And that's only natural when when you realize the presence of God is right there in your midst. You're seeing him do something spectacular. Your response is going to be one of fear. And we see that throughout the scripture, through the Old and New Testament, when people come in contact with the living God, they respond in very similar ways, such as they fall down like they were dead, they cry out because of their sin, they act because they are in the presence of holiness, and they can't stand because they're sinful. So I want you to notice now that after he was told not to fear death, Gideon built an altar to the Lord in that place. So what happens here then is that the angel of the Lord responds and tells them, tells them, peace, calm down, and you don't need to worry, you're not going to die. I think that's a comfort that's being brought to him. Yes, you're seeing God, but you're not going to die. And here again, I'm telling you, I'm going to be with you. So Gideon responds by building an altar to the Lord right there in that threshing floor for him. Now, it doesn't end there because when you meet God, God wants some things to change. God wants you to do some things. And we, again, see that in the life of Gideon. So that brings us to chapter 6, verses 25 to 32. And we're going to see that Gideon has to deal with the sin issue that his family has. What do you mean a sin issue? Well, if you read the text, you find out that Gideon's father had an altar to Baal. Baal is the Canaanite god of water or rain or thunder. And so he had an altar to the Canaanite god of thunder. We also see that he has what this text describes as a wooden pole. Many other texts will call it the Asherah pole, or they'll refer to it as the grotesque image. Basically, it again is another idol for a Canaanite goddess, the goddess of the sea, which is basically a fertility god. It's a sex god. And it was worshipped so that your animals would have more animals, that your crops would be fruitful. And she was the consort of the, 
of the primary deity in the Canaanite pantheon, which was El. And so what we see here is that Gideon's family had this altar and this pole, and God tells him to do something about it. So the Lord told Gideon to destroy his father's altar of Baal and cut down the wooden image. He was then told to build an altar and make an offering of the young bulls. See, there's mentioned two bulls that are here. He was to build an altar to the Lord there where this altar was destroyed and make an offering of the younger bull. Now, because he was afraid, he destroyed the altar and the image by night. So again, he's going to do what the Lord tells him to do. But the problem is, is Gideon is afraid and being afraid He doesn't do it during the day. He does it at night. He has 10 servants help him. They destroy the altar at night, and he builds an altar to the Lord to sacrifice this young bull. Now, in the morning, now this place, this altar of his father must have been a popular place for the local folks to hang out at. Maybe they came and made their offerings to Baal there, but the next day, In the morning, the men of the town wanted to kill Gideon for destroying the altar. At first, they're like, who destroyed the altar? And of course, the information gets out. It was Gideon. And so now they want to kill Gideon for tearing down the altar of Baal and and putting an altar to the Lord. Now, Gideon's father now enters into the picture, and Gideon's father stopped the men by telling them that they can let Baal defend himself. Basically, they're saying, hey, you guys, you know what? You don't need to kill him. If Baal's God, Baal's going to take care of himself. Let him contend for himself. And so they left Gideon alone. In fact, Gideon's name changes to now where they call him Jerubbabel. What does that mean? Baal contends. Probably a kind of a joke, but it signifies this incident where Baal didn't do anything. And we see that there. We then come to chapter 6, verse 33, through chapter 8, verse 21, and we're going to see the battle for deliverance from the Midianites. And so we're going to see several things here. First of all, We see, again, at the beginning of this passage in chapter 6, verse 33, it tells us that the Midianites and their allies gather together to, again, oppress Israel. And then the text goes on and it tells you this, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he sounded the horn to rally Israel. Now, this is very significant because I need you to understand something. Now, we live... In the church age, and we understand that when a person comes to Christ in salvation, the Holy Spirit enters into his life at that moment and is with him always until he goes to be with Jesus. That was not true prior to Pentecost. Prior to Pentecost, and especially in the Old Testament, the believers there, the people of God, did not have the Spirit of God indwelling them. However, there were incidents where the Spirit of God would come upon a person and empower them to do a service for the Lord. And that's what we see happening here. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon Gideon, and he sounds the horn to rally all of Israel. 
Now, what follows is an interesting incident from Gideon's life that really has caused a lot of discussion in Christian circles, even to this day, about testing God, putting out a fleece, so to speak. In fact, that's what the issue is here. Gideon knows what he's supposed to do. He's been told that he is the deliverer. So now he wants to make sure that this is what he's supposed to do. So he asks God to confirm that he's supposed to deliver Israel. And he does this, first of all, by having a fleece and asking God to bring dew, but allow the fleece to be dry. And of course, that happens in the morning he wakes up, dew is everywhere else, but the fleece is completely dry. Then again, that's not enough to convince Gideon, so he wants to really be sure. So he tells the Lord, Lord, trust me one more time. Can you do this, but allow the dew to be on the fleece, but not on the ground around it? And so the next day, of course, the Lord honored that request. And of course, the fleece was filled with water, but everywhere else around the fleece was dry. Now, the question is, is this what we use to test God? And oftentimes, this is where the whole question is, can we test God? Now, I need to point out a couple of things to you. The word test is used here in the text, but I need to explain to you what Gideon is seeking here is a confirmation of his will, of the Lord's will. He's not looking for a sign to know what should he do in this moment. He knows what he needs to do. He just wants a confirmation from the Lord that this is what he's supposed to do. Oftentimes, what we do when we test God is, is we kind of throw it out there. God, if you want me to do this, then show me what to do by giving me a sign. This is completely different. And what we see here is not rebuked by the Lord. Actually, the rebuke comes mostly from believers who have a hard time handling this passage. But what we see here is a conf- seeking a confirmation of what God's will is. And, and to be honest with you, that's reflective of Gideon's character. Remember, he's scared. He's weak. He doesn't see himself as a deliverer. When he's told to do something, he does it at night. And again, he's told to do something here. He's not sure. He's asking for a confirmation, and God gives him one. So twice God confirmed through the fleece what his will was to Gideon. We see that. Now, after Israel had gathered, the Lord stated that there were too many men for the victory. Isn't that interesting? We usually think in terms of if we're going to go into battle, we need to have as many men as possible to ensure victory. Well, Israel gathers all together, and and the Lord says to Gideon, you got too many people here. There's too many here. Send some of them home. I don't need them. And be honest with you, that just sounds crazy. But remember, who is the one that gives them the victory? The Lord does. So, At first, he says, how many of them don't want to be here? And those that don't want to be here, leave. And then later, he does a series of tests, like, for instance, how they drink water and so forth. So with after a series of tests, the army was reduced to 300 men. So after a series of tests, he whittles it down finally to 300 men. 
So with the 300 men, he attacked the Midianites at night and caused a panic. And so it's a very elaborate story. They're given a trumpet. They're giving, they're giving a censer, a bowl with, 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 a, with a light in it. And they're to position themselves in a way. And then they are to, at, at, when they're told to, they are to blow their trumpet and smash the light. And it gives the impression that there is a huge army that has surrounded the Midians. And so that's how they attacked the Midians. So the Midians, Midian, the Midianites began to kill each other and fled as Israel pursued them. The text tells us that they captured the two princes of the Midianites and they were killed. In fact, the text tells you one was captured over here and they killed him there. Another was captured in this place and they killed them there. Now, what follows after this is pretty interesting, but it's pretty much human life. Notice the man of Ephraim criticized Gideon, but he deflected their anger. The man of Ephraim were upset. You know what? You didn't call us to take part in this. And you know what? You left us out, but Gideon deflects their anger by pointing out to them, yes, but when you did show up, you were the reason why these princes were killed. And that was enough to appease the men of Ephraim. So then we see that Gideon and the, the people of Israel, the men of Israel, are chasing after the Midianites. And as they go along, of course, you're going to need supplies if you're going to feed men who are going to be fighting. And so they come to two different cities. So as Gideon pursued the Midianites, Sokoth and Penuel denied them help. So they showed up at Sokoth, asked for help. They were mocked by the elders there who said, what, we don't see that you have the king of Midian in your hand. We're not going to help you. Basically, they're not banking that this is going to deliver them, so they want to be sure that they're not going to face some repercussions from the Midianites for, for dealing with this rebellion. Same thing happens at Penuel, and we see that they deny help. Now, Gideon, of course, is upset at this. So Gideon swore that they would suffer retribution when the victory was complete. He basically said to Sokoth, you are going to pay the price when this victory happens. He says to Penuel, you folks are going to pay the price and I'm going to rip down your tower. That is the main tower, defensive tower in the city. I'm going to rip it down, leave you helpless because you didn't help us. Well, you know it's going to happen because God said it was going to happen. He was going to deliver Midian into Gideon's hand, and that's, of course, what happened. The victory, the victory against Midian was complete as Gideon routed the whole army. That's amazing. The victory was complete, but he routed the whole army. And of course, with that comes the retribution. So the elders of Sokoth were punished. It tells us they were punished with thorns. And I'm not talking about a briar patch thorn. We're talking about really long thorns. This was brutal in their day. The men of Penuel were killed. The men of Penuel were killed. And the tower was torn down. The tower of Penuel was torn down.
And that was the retribution. So now we come to what's pretty an interesting thing, but we see this because this is a precursor to what's going to be demanded later on when we come to 1 Samuel. They want to make Gideon an offer. And we're going to see that he has a counteroffer. And so we see this in a section we're going to call Kingship and the Ephid. And basically we see that in verses 22 through 27 of chapter 8. Gideon was offered kingship over Israel, but he refused, stating the Lord was king. So wisely, Gideon says, no, I don't want the kingship of Israel. Israel's king is the Lord. So he doesn't take that. But even though he turns down their offer, he does make a request of Israel. So he asked for the earrings from their plunder, and he made an ephod, which caused Israel to sin. So here's what he did. He said, okay, I'm not going to take your kingship, but could you do me one favor? Since I'm the guy who led this deliverance, could you give me from your plunder the golden earrings that you took from the Midianites when you slaughtered them? Now, if you're taking plunder from people, just a golden earring would not be significant. But if you think about it, thousands of Israelites killing, thousands of Israelites plundering, that's a lot of golden earrings. Now, here's where the problem is, and I think this very much reflects the corruption of Gideon as well as the corruption of Israel. They're not completely sold out to the Lord. How do I know that? Well, he takes those golden earrings and he makes a golden ephod, which is kind of like a breastplate, like a thing that hangs around your neck and it's kind of there in, in your front. And, and that's why the priests are called those with the linen ephod. It's kind of like a, a garment piece. And so he makes this. Now, the problem is, is he just doesn't make this, but Israel again begins to turn away from the Lord, and it says that they hoard after it. It becomes an object of worship from them, which, again, is the part of the whole problem, what's going on here. You know, they want the Lord, but they're also chasing after other gods. Then we come to the end of Gideon's life. We see that in chapter 8, verses 28 through 32, and we're going to see the death of Gideon. And several points are made here that are very interesting. First of all, Gideon had 70 sons, legitimate sons, from many wives. So Gideon just didn't have one wife. He had many wives because he had 70 legitimate sons. These are 70 sons who were his heirs. These are legitimate sons. So these are from his legitimate wives. The text also tells us that he had a concubine who bore him a son called Abimelech. And we're going to talk about Abimelech next week. But he is the son of a concubine. So I need to kind of refresh your memory about what a concubine is. Now, we often think of a concubine as kind of like a sex slave or something. That's not what it is. It's actually a lesser wife. It's a wife, but it's a wife who doesn't have the privileges of a proper, legitimate wife. And the children of a concubine have no part in the inheritance 
of their father. So the children of a concubine are not considered legitimate heirs. And that's going to play into the story later when we see this issue of Abimelech. Now, we don't know how old Gideon was when he died. The text simply tells us that Gideon died at a good old age and they buried him in his father's tomb. Now, I just think this whole story of Gideon is interesting and very instructive to you and I. What do you mean by that, George? Well, I think it's interesting because what we see is somebody who's serving the Lord, somebody being used of the Lord, but he doesn't have his act together. In fact, he definitely strays in a lot of areas, and some of the results of his actions actually cause further problems for Israel. And we're especially going to see that next week with the son of this concubine. And so that's where our focus is going to be next week. We're going to look at this son, Abimelech, what he did, the sins that he did. And then we're also going to take a look at the two judges, the two minor judges who were raised up after him. We're going to look at that next week.